I'm so delighted to share that this very episode is sponsored by Food Vitamin Energy. Sparkling, fruity, energising and refreshing, we can beat tiredness and fatigue, all the energy and all the vitamins without the chemical aftertaste. Use DBIT30 for 30% off at checkout at drinkfood.com. Spell it drinkfud. You Scottish listeners should laugh. DBID30 for 30% off or to receive a full crate for £13. Jen, I can't believe this is happening. You're perhaps one of my biggest role models, if not the biggest role model. For those who don't know you, can you give a brief introduction of who you are today in November 2020? Hi, it's great to be on. My name is Jen uh, Pemberton. Um, I founded an organisation called ANTS. ANTS is a social impact organisation. We deliver services and solutions um, within a unified network um, to change people's lives um, and also enable commercial growth. And uh, we like to deliver that locally and we do it across the UK. Awesome. Uh, So you're a CEO and a founder. And that's the introduction I got from you when we met uh, out of sheer luck in August 2018. I checked that today over two years ago. Um, and how we met was I was I still am a junior apprentice at a large corporation and at that point in time I was traveling quite a lot to London uh, and I would have to travel from Glasgow airport and to get to Glasgow airport I'd have to take the train to a town called Paisley and get a taxi from Paisley to Glasgow and the corporation I work for hand out American Express gold cards like their bloody sweeties uh, so that's what I had to pay for my taxi between Paisley in Glasgow but if anyone knows the journey it's really short and the the charge that Amex applies to taxi drivers is, is quite quite substantial so the taxi drivers frown upon it because almost the fare is worth, unworthwhile so I was standing at the taxi rank uh, and there was no taxis I was waiting a good five or ten minutes and finally a taxi came I tried to pay with this or I tried to ask the taxi driver if they took card and they always pretend they always pretend that their card machine is broken so me being stingy and being skint, and still am skint, uh, I just decided to wait for the next taxi. And there's a wonderful flamboyant woman behind me, and said, she said, is it okay if I take the taxi, son? So, lo and behold, yeah. that, that, that was you, and you, you walked into the taxi, and you turned around and said, I'm going to the airport, do you want to jump in? So I jumped into the taxi, and uh, making the small chat, oh, where are you going, what are you doing? I was going to London That's for true. training, I told you who I worked for, and you told me the brief introduction you just had there, and all your social yeah. stuff, and I told you about the social mobility stuff I'm in, interested in, and I think, I saw a fully actualized version of myself in you and you saw like a younger oh. version of you and me. And we just got on Absolutely. and you gave me your business card and we went different ways. Uh, and we always kept in contact. I always yep. kept up to date on Ants on LinkedIn and you always kept up to date on my progress as an apprentice on LinkedIn too. And then uh, it was 2019, I reached out to you with this kind of burning itch to do good. Mm. And I had this idea to link role models with disadvantaged students and a kind of network and I didn't know whether I wanted to do that with the firm I worked for or as like a personal hobby and I pitched that to you on LinkedIn I read our messages today in fact Jen did you pitched, yeah I did I pitched that to you <laughs> uh, as an idea uh, uh-huh. because I was so inspired by you because you do so much societal good and lo and behold through luck again you said I'm back in Ayrshire this weekend from Friday to Monday I visit my mum yeah. can yeah, we meet up and from there, yeah. fast forward two years, I've created a social mobility Scotland network with the firm I'm working for with 50 mentors. Phenomenal. <laughs> uh, Phenomenal. 
I've presented in front of 18,000 colleagues on the day about our values and why they're important, one UK apprentice of the year, uh, and perhaps meeting the high, most high ticketed women and the planet in a couple of weeks. Uh, wow. All because of that yeah. one conversation, because you taught me to play on oh. someone else's dime and to serve myself Absolutely. before others. All because, just because of that one conversation. Oh. Um, and I'm so, I'm so fortunate to have met you, but we met again, and like I said, Irvin. So why why is Irvin important to you? And uh, what, what's your origin story, I guess? Oh, you know, your story is great to hear it, you know, again. Um, and it just shows you one person can uh, make that shift if they're in the right place with the right voice. And that's where you were. So I think that's why I gave you the advice. But my story is, um, I'm Glaswegian, born in um, central Glasgow. It was in the overspill, if MD knows that, from, from Glasgow and Ayrshire. Um, and moved to um, Ayrshire and ended up in a place called Dreghorn, um, which is a tiny wee village, or Dregan, as they call it, down our way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had a couple of churches, a pub, couple of pubs and a school. Um, and I was brought up there really in a, a local, um, very small council estate. Um, I think, you know, my parents, my mum and dad were kind of, a, my mum wanted to escape, you know, the the city of Glasgow is a great place. I'm very proud to be Glaswegian, but, you know, it wasn't a great place to breathe in the air back then. And you know, it was a hard place to live. And she wanted um to give us more, I think, you know, and something different and be at the coast and, and do all that. So, yeah, that's why I ended up in Ayrshire and Irvine. My mum now lives in Irvine. Oh, okay. um, and and she has a wee, a wee apartment that overlooks the Isle of Arran. And we met at the cafe, Grow Cafe, which is just down the road. So, and obviously I have a lot of friends and, and family you know, down down the West Coast. So, and it's, I think, I don't live there anymore. I live in Greater Manchester. But I think when you're young and you see the Isles of Arran every day and the beach and you kind of take it for granted, um, you know, when you live in it. But when you come back, I'm so appreciative of that and the people, you know, the humour and the, the friend, you know, the how friendly everybody is. So, yeah, so... That's what, what, what it is for me. So I went to school in Dreghorn. I went to Greenwood Academy in Dreghorn as well. Um, along with, I think, Nicola Sturgeon went to Greenwood Academy, a wee bit younger than me. But I, she lived, I think, a bit around the corner. Uh, so I saw her and her family kind of growing up. Her dad, I think, was an electrician. I don't know what her mom did. Just a quiet family, you know. Um, it was a, we weren't, it was a lot of kind of mixed um, street. There was, how should I say, um, Catholic and Protestants living on the street, um, which is back then was, was sometimes controversial, not for me. Um, my grandmother was a Catholic, my grandfather, my grandfather was a Catholic, my grandmother was a Protestant. So I've been brought up to to look at everyone equal, equally, regardless of colour, creed or kind. Um, but back then there was, as is now, there can be a lot of controversy around that. So when I brought up, you know, my mum, we had a beautiful house. Um, my role model's my mother. She was a strong, beautiful, loving mother. And I'd say, you know, 
when you look at, you know, poverty or diversity in the social circumstances, um, that strong role model can sometimes be missing and yeah. it can lead you down different paths. And I was blessed to have her and, and, and the strong women in my family. I think across the two families, I've got some like 17 cousins. <laughs> uh, but, but we live down in Ayrshire. So it was me and my brother. Um, and I did, I always felt really rich, even though we didn't have a lot of money, you know. And there was people that had, you know, we went to a sandwich, but they would have sugar on a sandwich or just butter or just bread. But, you know, my mother, you know, worked so hard and um, I had great shoes and, and great food on the table where a lot of people didn't have that. And I saw that as a young person. And I told you the story when I was quite young and I went, went to the butcher's. My mum was buying all the meat. Always had meat. My mum always put good meat on the table. So funny, I became a vegetarian as soon as I left home, but I don't know. I think that was maybe a bit of rebellion. Um, but um, I, maybe I didn't appreciate how hard she worked. But um, I said to her, Mum, can, can we get some meat for some other people, you know, on the street that maybe that I knew the kids maybe weren't uh, my friends, weren't they getting a full, full stomach, really? And she says, I can't afford to do that. I says, no, just ask the butcher. I'm sure he'll give you some, some meat for them. And I was naive and uh, but, and also on the bus. You know, my friend couldn't go to Irvine on the bus because she didn't have any bus fare. And I thought, can, she not, can the bus driver just know later on? And I think I learned very, very, very young that society was not fair. And I really didn't like that. I didn't like... I could and somebody couldn't. And also, you know, there was people a hell of a lot better off than me. And I thought I should have the same as them. And, you know, I was always taught, you know, always be polite, always be courteous. But for sure, you know, you're as good as anyone else, you know. And I think that's it's not just a word. It's how you're brought up, you mm -hmm. know, um, and always care for others. So... I'm very blessed that, that that what I had, but you know, I had a controversial um, childhood. My father, you know, was an alcoholic. He was a he was an artist as well. I suppose he was a bit of an introvert, um, a talented artist. Um, he'd done work for the um, Queen Mom, and he went to London when when we were young, and he was doing some work in uh, I think it was Westminster Abbey, the House of Commons. I can't really wow. remember. But um, he got in, he's a master woodcarver and he got invited down and there used to be signs on the door. Sorry, all you English people that are listening, but thank God it's changed now because I do live in England. And it said, no blacks, no dogs, no Scots and no Irish. Wow. So he went down and even though he was working for whoever that was, um, the, the body that gave him the job, he, he couldn't get into his bed and breakfast because he was Scottish. Really? Yes. So, you know, that was in the 60s, you know, so what, the world has changed, thankfully, you know. And I think I learned, I grew up with kind of that story um, and I've travelled around the world and been in lots of places and I think I'm very proud of being Scottish and I think we're welcome in all, all countries around the world. As soon as you say Robbie Burns or a wee Scots accent comes out, it kind of, <laughs> a bit like football, I think, you know, it's like a, an international kind of language. Oh, you're Scottish. 
or somebody's money, mum, gran, or great grandmother was Scottish. So they're very, very proud of being Scottish. I, have, I moved away when I was 23, and you can probably hear I still have uh, a strong accent. And I think it's stronger, David, because I'm talking to you <laughs> today as well. You know, so, yes. All the conversations uh, we've had. I've noticed uh, from the beginning of the end, from the beginning to the end of the call, your accent slowly gets stronger and stronger. Yeah. <laughs> so it's your it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, all started in, in Dragon and Greenwood Academy. What was your mm-hmm. your life like at school as a as a young woman in that area? Oh, I hated school. I couldn't wait to leave. It was disastrous. I went to school to do sport and have fun. Um, I didn't know then, but I'm dyslexic. I couldn't tell the time until I was at the end of sec- primary school. Um, I couldn't tie my laces. I couldn't do mental arithmetic. Um, I really struggled, you know, and don't get me wrong. I had some great teachers who were so kind. Um, I'd sometimes get people to do my work. So I learned very young how to, to manage it. To delegate. manipulate it with some a delegate my mother always said I'd be a good manager um so I kind of had I knew how to uh not I didn't know I had dyslexia or neurodiverse which I prefer um but you know I had some it was hell you know I remember getting put in a, a corner you know the big heater you wouldn't remember but in Drake one primary there was a big heater in the corner and the teacher made me stand in there and miss two play times just because I couldn't read, read standing up. So that ruined my whole kind of reading out loud for forever. Um, I think it still does, but I, I, I can stand up in public and talk, but it's usually, I, I, you know, um, from the heart or for from the mind. So, yeah, it was really hard. And I think it got harder in, in, when we went to secondary school. Um, I'm, I've always been, I don't know, for some reason... Um, I think, for example, I get put in set one for a lot of things. And I'm thinking, why am I here? Because I know I couldn't do it, you know, what they were going to do. Um, I ended up in set three. And then we get put into remedial in Greenwood Academy. And it was really funny, if MD's listening, it was at Greenwood Academy. On the second floor... There was a glass room at the end. All the other rooms had walls and big doors. But they put all the kids in remedial in the glass room. And everybody used to walk past. And you're like, gosh, because you want to hide, you know. That's a kid that can't read, that can't write. I could read, I could write. But there was kids in there that couldn't. Um, Now I know, you know, more about, um, you know, disability, you know, HD or dyslexia or or whatever that may be, but then I didn't. But I think because of the love and the support I had at home, and this might come over a little bit arrogant, but I actually thought the teachers that put me there or didn't teach me were crap teachers. So I kind of thought they don't know how to teach me, so they can't be very good at their job because their job is to teach me. So if I can't take that in or I can't do that, they're not doing their job right. And I used to get annoyed because, you know, you had a kind of stigma, you know, of being in that class. I remember me and my friend were called Tweedledee and Tweedledum, you know, but we giggled. But you know what? It did hurt, you know? And I think when you're told 
over and over again, not at home, but in, in life, outside life. Thankfully, I had a, a wonderful stability at home with my mother um, that you can't do something. You kind of get a bit annoyed, pissed off, I think I'd say. And you think, no, I can do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've all, I think I was born resilient. I don't know why, but I, I was born resilient. And somebody telling you can't do something, I'll either, I'll either get somebody else to do it or I'll do it better than anybody else. Or, you know, um, if there's a wall in front of me, I'll go through it, around it or on top of it. And that's, I've kind of always been like that. So I'm very lucky and I was quite sporty. But yeah, it was, it was, I felt disrespected. Um, I felt um, judged, you know, by your peers, because they would, because you could see you sitting in the room. But as I said, I had this, um, I don't know, gift, and it is a gift because I, I could have went the other way. You know, I could have been the kid that had mental health or anxiety or, or whatever, you know, that plays out. But the world's different. I was 40 when I found out I had dyslexia or should I say neurodiverse, and it's great that employers are now employing neurodiverse people. Having dyslexia or a disability is not a disability. It's an ability to do something different. Mm. And if the world could, if we as a, as, a, as a community embrace that, we could certainly have an amazing United Kingdom or, 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 or should I say Scotland or wherever you're listening from. Um, so um, it's an ability, not a disability. And I think um, I can understand in my small way what that feels like. So if somebody says the word test to me, I will literally go blind, stand up and read. I can't. I can't see the words that moves. It's, and it still does it to this day. It still brings anxiety to me to this day. I have a phenomenal team who help me do things I'm conscious and my team is encouraging me to my spelling's quite bad so if I write on LinkedIn I'm you know so I'm like god you can't spell and she's a CEO well I'm at the stage I kind of don't care because you can now learn my language (laughs) which is a language of disability so that's where we're kind of heading but yes it's um you know but I was also really really blessed because I was the bit that I think that finally changed it was when I went, was leaving school and if anybody remembers, you had a career guidance teacher and a career guidance lady that come in and she said, she looked at my grades and I did get O-levels. I don't know how. I turned up and I did them. I always went to school. I don't know how I got them, but I did. I, I can't, can't tell you what in. I have no idea. I can't remember. But the... Um, she looked at my levels and obviously I didn't have English and maths. And she said that there's an interview for you to the local knitwear company, knitwear factory. And if you go along, you'll get the job. I says, no, thank you. And she said, I beg your Oh, God. Because someone was making my choice for me. And there's nothing wrong with a knitwear factory if that's what you want to do. And she was judging who I was as a person and my ability. And if I wanted to be working in it, but there's nothing wrong with that. And if I wanted to do anything I want to do, but don't tell me what to do. (laughs) And that was the bit that annoyed me. 
you know, someone telling me that that's what I had to do and that's all I could do. And she was horrified. I gave her it back and I think I got reported. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know. it's horrible to hear that you had almost your self-worth tied to your, your disability or your, your dyslexia Absolutely. or your neurodiversity. Yeah. Um, is that the, the, the kind of pivotal point in your, your kind of your mindset in your career when you were told that? I think, I think that the mindset was, I can't wait to get out of this school. I just cannot. I felt as if I was in a, a, a torture chamber for my whole life. It was just awful. You know, with, I did have friends, don't get me wrong. I was very sporty and social. In fact, my best friend um, was in, in, um, who lives in America now, was in the year below me. Um, and uh, so it was just, it was just torture. So leaving that, I was so excited for the first time in my life. I was so excited that I had now control of what I could do. And I didn't even know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wasn't going to the knitwear company so I think it was a sense of relief and excitement and I was 15 I was two weeks before I think it was a month before my 16th birthday and my my mother I I, I don't know you need to ask her but I think she was kind of pulling her hair out and um the spirited um child and she told a neighbor and the neighbor worked at Beecham Pharmaceuticals and he got me an interview and um I got the job as an office junior at Beach and nice. Pharmaceuticals. So I think I think it shows not just for me, but if you have self-worth and self-belief and you're given that and, and not, that's nurtured, I think your aspirations are greater. Um, and if people take away your self-worth, your aspirations are on the floor. Uh, and I'm lucky enough I had cousins and family um, it made me feel worthy, you know. I I was reflecting the other night on this, and there was a concept I read about, and it, I relate to it a lot. And it's um, and I'm sure I speak on another podcast. It's about a high agency person and a low agency person, and yeah. how you would define that. A low agency person, when told a story about them, they believe that that's fact, and they place yeah. a, a glass ceiling on themselves and believe that's the truth. And I must live that truth. A high agency person's told a story. And they'll either find a way or make a way and not believe that that's the story that they're given. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your story completely resonates with that. You were given yes. a story by someone. This is what you're going to yeah. do. And this is your worth. And this is your your limited capacity. And you thought, no, fuck this. Absolutely. Uh, I did. I'm Jim Pemberton and I'm going to, pr- I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. I'm going to do what yeah. I'm going to do what I can't. And yeah. uh, I thought that my, my version of that story is that um, when I was younger, I come from a, a very similar disadvantaged background and I was um, really entrepreneurial minded growing up. I used to bake tablet and sell it around the streets and I had paper in from the ages of 13 till I was 18. And one time when I was collecting my wages, I was in my uncle's kitchen and I was counting the copers, the loose change. And he said to me, oh, you're good at counting that son. You could be an accountant. They make a lot of money. And hearing that as a young person, like, oh, I can make a lot of money. Yeah. I'm good at this. <laughs> uh, that was my new uh, mission statement. I'm going to be an accountant. So everyone who asked, oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? Uh, because I shared, every, all humans share the desire to feel important. It's the only trait that all humans cohesively possess. Bursting with this pride, I would say an accountant. And then one day I, I exclaimed this to my next door neighbor. 
And my next door neighbor's mum is from the exact same demographic as me. She was like, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? Bursting with this pride, I said, an accountant. And she just laughed in my face and said, your mum and dad aren't smart or your mum and dad are employed, mm. unemployed. Uh, how will you be an accountant? You could be, mm. an, you could be a chef or you could, mm. the name's like maybe, maybe another uh, mm. unskilled job. And th- for me, that's when I realized, reflecting the yeah. other night, I realized at that point, that's when I became a high agency person. I was given this story by this woman yeah. and decided that's not the end. That's not the ending I'm going to write. And yeah. it's crazy how someone from your generation, your demographic, had that same yeah. mentality that I still carry with me today. And it's so refreshing to hear that. And I can't wait to hear how. It just shows you, you know, it's so important that you give those positive, um, and not not just positive, but don't make it fake, but look look at the person and see what they're good at. You know, whether it's talking, writing, or whatever that is, and, and, and honour it, you know. And, it's so, and I don't think we do that enough, um, especially at school. Well, for me... It, at school um even my daughter went to school we were, we lived in america um my daughter's 25 now and i remember um she came home from school we just moved back from the states and she she was crying and she said uh, the teacher said rebecca can't paint and i said oh she says everyone can paint mom but she was distraught my daughter it's, so I think it's still going, you know, she's 25, you know, so it just unfortunately is maybe something, I don't have a good relationship with school, I think you can hear that, you know, <laughs> um, so, um, but she had a positive relationship, um, we ended up in a positive relationship with school, but it is, it's a bit that, that affirmation of, of, of whether you're a good baker or, um, I worked for my, one of my Friends, mum and dads ran a shop in an ice cream van. So I learned what profit was. And I learned if you put a penny on or a half penny, that you could make money. And if you made money, you could have nice things. Um, but they were such a beautiful family. They were so kind and generous um, to everybody. I remember people coming into the shop having no money. They did a shop in a, quite a poor area in Irvine. And people had no money and they had a book. <laughs> and sometimes they just write the money off, you know, because they had enough, yeah. you know, and they knew who to look after. And that that's community. And it was, uh, so even though I was working in a commercial uh, venture, I saw compassion and understanding. And it was pretty rough. I remember you couldn't walk to the bus stop. You know, my friend's dad used to take you home in the car. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. So I saw and worked in a kind of environment. I was I think I was fourteen. Um, I used to get free ice cream, which was really good. If you're in Glasgow, it's called a pokey hat, which I remember my grandmother shouting, "Let's go and get a pokey hat off the, the ice cream van." So yeah, um, some great great memories as well. But you know, I think as a woman, um, you know. I, I'm not playing the sexism card at all, but um, I never, ever have. I, I, you know, it's about skill. It's about ability. It's about um, also about diversity. And I believe women and men, whether it's in a marriage or a relationship or a business, you need the two sides. So um, I think I'm saddened to hear, um, even in today's world, a lot of 
um, younger women are still experiencing what I experienced, which was, you're a woman, you can't do that job. Um, or in my case as well, you don't have a degree, you never went to university, and you're a woman, so you can't do that job. So um, the odds were kind of kind of stacked against me. And um, I remember we went on strike, if they went to Greenwood Academy, we stood in the, the, the playground with our um, trousers on, because we weren't allowed to wear trousers to school, only skirts. And the headmaster came out and I think he, he, he yielded his, his belts is what you used to get to over the hand if you were misbehaved back then. And we all ran, ran for the hills. Um, and I was so pissed off that um, we never got to have that conversation um, and to discuss it. And it was, uh, and then I went to work at Beecham's and you still couldn't wear trousers, but that was changed within about a year. So, yeah, I sound really old, don't, don't I? Can't wear trousers to work. You, you went from this uh, do what you can't mindset in school. And how did you, where did you go next? How did you apply that to your next move? And what was your next move after school, after Beecham's? Well, after, after Beecham's, um, uh, I wanted, I wanted, to, I had a friend that passed quite young. He was in his early 20s. And um, I had a hunger to travel. Um, and I don't mean just in the UK. I mean, I had a hunger to travel the world. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. I was out my reach. You know, I didn't go on a plane till I was 17, you know. Um, no, I was 18, actually. <laughs> and um, so I didn't know. It fascinated me. You know, God, can I say it? We lived in a very different society back then in Scotland. Uh, you know, we didn't have multicultural environments and I think I I seek that my grandfather was in the foreign legion and also traveled the world um as a young and used to tell his stories so um I became an air stewardess I got a job as an air stewardess we get paid a pound an hour um really? yeah it was a pound an hour and I took a 50 percent wage drop for my salary as well and uh I joined an airline called Highland Express um, and people came from all over the world and all over Europe to join that company. Um, it started up the same time as Virgin Atlantic. Virgin Atlantic still going, Highland Express lasted, I think it was a year. <laughs> I'm not accrediting that to you, Jen, at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 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 was, I was down the back serving tea and coffee. Um, but I got, I got my fix of different cultures and different people and I started growing as a as a as a as a person and as a woman, and um, you know, as one of the things I always also back then I don't think it would happen now was somebody saying to me, "You're going to go and work in Russia. Why? Why do you want?" I says, "Yeah, yeah, but they won't understand you." And I says, "No, it's okay. I'll have an interpreter because I was going to eventually. I was setting up airlines in Russia, and." Uh, she says, I says, no, it's okay, I've got an interpreter. She says, no, no, I don't think you understand. Your Scottish accent, they just won't understand you. So I said, I beg your pardon. She said, they won't understand you. I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> and she eventually got where I was trying to go. So, so <laughs> I suppose we all experience different things in our life, you know, no matter who you are. But 
I think from there my tenacity and confidence grew as a as a as a person and my understanding of the world um, as I saw it, which was I was really lucky growing up, really really lucky, in some of the countries that I did see, and um, there was a lot of poverty, there was a lot of riches, and I think. I think it's maybe it's a Scottish thing or a woman thing. I don't know, but I was always really good at what I did. I always had to be the best at what I did, not for anybody else, but for me. So I got spotted throughout my whole career. It's hardworking and always wanted more. <laughs> so that's the thing. It's something that's still in me. And when I realised that people, you know, everybody, I think we can all. I'm sure you have, David. You know, people have helped you through your career, you know, and you wouldn't be where you are if it wasn't for them. They've always you know, been. If you got somebody, been, yeah, they've always been hand ups, not handouts. Yes. Uh, which, and I, I love that analogy. And yeah, I think for me, and I think I've said this to you before. I don't see myself as intelligent. I don't see myself as incredibly hardworking. But what I do understand is that I know what outcome I want. Like I'm self-aware to know what I want out of life. And I know what opportunities or scenarios or environments that outcome sits in. Yeah. And then I, what I do is I discover someone or network with someone that can get me into that into that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's a constant linear progression that I do. I find a new, I find a new person, find a new scenario, yeah. find a new result, get bored of that, and then keep on doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that that kind of follows the premise of what you just said. Yeah. I, absolutely, I think we're we're like like minded on that. If and it's like sitting on your dime, you've got to sit where you need to be doing to make an impact, no matter what that is or where it is. And I think you know, my mother was um, hardworking and she worked in a shop in Irvine and she ran the shop. And I used to think she should be the boss, you know. But I realized at a very young age, you had to be in the right position or you needed to be, you know, if you didn't have the contacts or the voice or or the cheek or the tenacity, you cannot get left behind. And that's kind of led me on to doing what I do now. And I think um, one of the things that I think I remember sharing with you is I used to, I was very blessed. I went for a job to set up private airlines back in Russia um, just after Gorbachev because all the the big companies like Coca-Cola and Conoco couldn't fly on Aeroflot or Aeroflop. Can I say that? I don't know. Um, So they weren't insured. So these companies, little companies started popping up up private airlines and they needed to be sort of European or Americanized CA and FA, which we worked under. And I I got the job I get one of the jobs to get there and help set up airlines. And I went to a place called Vladivostok. And if anybody knows it, it's right round the furthest place from Moscow. It's round the opposite side of the... It took 17 hours travelling from Moscow to, to Vladivostok. And there was a couple of sheep on there as well. And um, it was an experience. I'm just glad I got there and back in and, and one piece. But, but when I got there, it changed my life, I would say. I met people who ate caviar and longestines for lunch, but they couldn't afford any heating because that was what they fished for. They could fish off the water for the best fish in the world. 
and um, they ate the best food in the world, but they couldn't afford electricity or gas or um, it was it was a bizarre place. So I had I and one other person. I was the only um, me and one of it was an American and me, and we had a bodyguard with us all the time because the if anybody looks at Vladivostok, it's where the KGB were based. So to get in, it was quite hard. So I was setting up an airline, helping to close down and set up an airline in Vladivostok. And I had somebody sleeping outside my door. And everybody spoke um, Russian, apart from an interpreter. And the people I worked with who um, back, at, back at the company. So it was, it was really weird. If I went to walk, somebody was walking with me. Um, it was it was bizarre. It was it's a bit like COVID. You, you get a curfew at nine o'clock. You know you can't go out. But um, it was it, it changed me forever. And I met the most beautiful people. I tried to share my um, political or or thoughts, um, free thinking thoughts with some of them that um, that I work with. But they were frightened to discuss it at that time because you know they were still in a a kind of a different world from what I lived in. But one of the things I discovered um, at an airline that I worked at, I went in to get help them as an air stewardess to train the crew and help them pass their exams so that they could work on board an aircraft and, and deliver a, a sort of a European service and safety. And I, my job was to kind of sack a load of people and bring in some new people. But it was this really dark cloud, David, and um, I couldn't I couldn't get my hands on what it was. So I went back to the owner who didn't speak English. So I had to do it through an interpreter, and the interpreter's terrified for the, the owner and said to him, I'm not getting rid of them. I'm keeping them, and I want to find out what's going on. And the people I was working with were moms, um, young, young people from 18 to sort of 50, some had kids, some didn't. One was pregnant. Um, and there was really suppressed, which happened a lot in Russia then, but there was something really dark. Anyway, um, he went with me. He supported me. And um, I think they thought, I remember they used to say I was English, the English girl. But whatever English girl says is, is good for us. Um it was a fellow where I'm not English, I'm Scottish. But anyway, that I just let it go. Anyway, I found out, long story short, that uh, one of the chief, the chief officer was uh, prostituting them all. If not, maybe not all of them. There's only was 15 of them. Um, and he had a power over them. And um, so I went sitting about dislodging that power. And I think the biggest thing I learned was that when you work with people, you've got to look a little bit further. You've got to look, and my my upbringing and my my dyslexia and feeling judged and all that is something that I'd say has, has led me to what I do today. But a lot of people have gone through what I've done. But what I thought at that time was I need to do business differently. Yeah. We've got to do it differently. And that was, you know something that I realized. I didn't know what that was then. Um, and they, they went on to become a successful airline and I left and, 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 and helped set up some other airlines. 
So um, I went to America and lived in America and I think I've, I've lived in a few places, but um, I lived in Africa um, uh, after that and in different countries. And then I went to America and lived there for five years with my my first husband. I've been married and divorced twice, but uh, with my first husband. Um, and it was a, a relationship that developed into domestic violence. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, why didn't the women leave? Well, it's, it's bloody hard, um, uh, no matter whether you're in your own country or another country. But one of the things that I realized in that country because my ex-husband had the visa was that if I left him, I'd lose my daughter. So if I left America to go to Scotland with my daughter, I would be kidnapping. So I'm in a very, very bad situation. So wanting to either leave him in America or return home. So diversity for sure um, and challenges um, were certainly in front of me. But because of my resilience and because of my upbringing and love and family that I have, and uh, I managed to get him and my daughter back to the UK where I subsequently left him. Um, and something happened in that moment as well. Um, and I'm not saying this happens for anyone, anyone domestic violence or, or abuse, because I'm not speaking for everyone. Um, but something that happened to me was when someone is holding you down and you're frightened for your life, there's a real calmness that come over me. And I felt sorry for him. <laughs> and I got braver and I got stronger. And fear... I kind of overcame a lot of fear in my life um, from that moment. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm still fearful. Um, but I kind of run at things, maybe too much sometimes. So it gave me the strength to set, set up my company, to know that what I wanted, or what, not what I wanted, what I believed in was equal opportunity for all, for people to be seen as they are and to see the gifts that they have and to honor their gifts. And I'm not perfect and the world isn't perfect, but if we could each look at one person in our life and do that for them, the world would be a very different place. But hey, hey, hey ho, we're in the 90s, the naughty 90s, and there was Dallas, big shoulder pads, money, money, money. You know, um, and then the, the early millennials, you know, uh, uh, 2000. Um, so it wasn't kind of happening work. And when I left my my first husband, um, I kind of had to go back to work. And I was I was in a, a consultant director. We're setting up private airlines around the world. And. Next thing, I, I, I had to go and get a sales job. Another thing, I'm a sales job. I'm actually quite good at selling. And the, the reason I'm good at selling is because I can't sell MD anything if they don't need it. And I've always done very well doing that. So with authenticity and looking at purpose and if somebody needs it over profit is, um, does lead you to be really good, no matter whether it's commercially or how you feel about yourself. So I became a saleswoman and, 
and uh, brought up my daughter and went on to subsequently marry again. Uh, married a guy who I shouldn't have married because we should have stayed friends and subsequently we have been divorced. But, um, but uh, that, that, that was uh, certainly a different story from my first marriage. But um, brought up my daughter as a single, a single mum for a long while. And, you know, I think when I look back, I had a lot of great people in my life. And I'm going to talk about Sir Tom Hunter. And when I looked, when I was sort of, I think Tom Hunter was buying companies in the 90s somehow, I think. Um, and I remember seeing him and thinking, oh, my God, it's, he's a sir. Because oh I was living out the country. So this guy I knew that was in my house in Dracorn, my council house, eating my homemade lasagna, drinking my mum's homemade wine, was now a sir. I thought, so, so when we, wait a second, when, when was he in your your your, your mum's house? I need to know oh, about that. I was in my I was it must have been 1920. And we used to go to the Bobby Jones in here. And um my best one of my best friends, Karen, um from, from Hurlford, um, her best friend dated Tom Hunter. And I love to cook and I still do. Not as I'm not as good as I think I used to be, or maybe as I thought I was. <laughs> Anyway, I thought I'd have a dinner party in my council house kitchen. We didn't even have enough chairs. And my mother was awesome. She'd made all this homemade wine that had sediment in the bottom. And I made lasagna. I think I had a fondue, a cheese fondue. And he was sat around my table drinking my mother's wine. But I remember him always being a really quiet man. You know, he was always kind of never putting himself forth. But it was always, you could feel his presence um, and I'm sure if MD knows about the Bobby Jones and, you know, it was a great nightclub in there and the karate boys used to go and Tom Hunter would be sitting with all these karate boys. And there was a guy called Pat Mackay, who's now um, the only five times world champion that came out of Kilmarnock. And he used to go to the Bobby Jones and he needs a sir, by the way, if MD's listening. <laughs> he changed uh, karate as it was. And so I was kind of surrounded when you think about it way back then. I've got Nicola Sturgeon. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I'm not going to get political. Um, about 10 doors up. And I've got Pat Mackay, who's um, the only five times world karate champion in the world from Kilmarnock. And I'm rubbing shoulders with Sir Tom Hunter. Maybe, maybe that there was something in the water, as my mother would say, <laughs> or something in diversity that shows that if you have the right support, and I know Pat did, I know Nicola did, and I know Sir Tom Hunter did, had parents that supported them and gave them a voice of whatever, even at home. Um, these are all working class people. Where would the world be without Tom Hunter? Look at all the people he's employed. Look at the philanthropy that he's, he's bestowing, not just in Scotland, but across the globe, talking to world leaders. He, you know, he was eating lasagna in my house. I'm sure he'd have so stomach <laughs> after the wine. Nicola Sturgeon, you know, you know, a very solid um, family. And Pat, I think Pat's the eldest of 13. And he talks about making dinner and... Roy's siblings and 
great people. I'm very blessed to be to be around them. You, you know, I'm starting to believe the magic is in that wine. I think I need some. I think that's what it is, Jen. Is that wine? I'll call, I'll call my mother up. She's 83, but I think she could still rustle up a wee bottle of, oh. of, of the wine. Nicola never had the wine. I think Pat did. I, I think you can tell Nicola didn't have the wine. <laughs> I was going to say that, but I was, didn't know. <laughs> Don't live in Scotland anymore, so you can say I can't. <laughs> So I think, so, so I do think, you know, I think it's a lot to do my upbringing, um, love and support, but what about the people that, that don't have a voice and, and don't have, have that love and, and, and support? Um, people, ex-offenders, people, um, you know, they say, you know, we do a lot of work working with people coming uh, through the gate and supporting them in prison. And if you look at the stats, it's something like, um, I think the reading age is something like 12, you know, maybe there's a lot of dis- disability in there and also poverty, you know. Um, so, you know, looking at people with um, physical disability or people with mental health, we're talking more about mental health than ever. I struggled um, the first lockdown myself. I, I'm a very strong woman, but I had a little bit of anxiety um, and I have a people around me, but you know, no matter whether you're in prison, in work, in a community centre, there's people that are alcoholics in your family, there's people with disability, there's people um, with drug and alcohol abuse. They're, it's everywhere. It's not, it doesn't choose uh, poverty. And I think mm-hmm. what we've done in corporate lives is kind of pretend we haven't got those um, Achilles heels, and we do. <laughs> So what I pulled from that massive introduction and that massive Genesis story. No, 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 it was amazing. Uh, If there's any video footage, you'll see me with my mouth gaped or smiling throughout (laughs) the entire thing. It was so inspiring, so, so empowering. And that's not the first time I've, that's the longest version I've heard of that story. But I heard (laughs) like an elevator pitch of that story two years ago. And that's, that was the catalyst for me to become a better person and to do good. And uh, the two the two themes I, I took out of that was self awareness. So when you were young, you realized the, the example was that you you told teachers or you believe teachers couldn't teach you, and mm-hmm. uh, not it wasn't a deficiency in yourself because you were self aware yes. enough to know the value that you provide even at that age. And then yeah. emotional intelligence, you um, you've recognized that different demographics have different needs and have different journeys, mm-hmm. and that's what's I, I feel like from my that that. The self, the self awareness, the high, the high agency, and the emotional intelligence seems like the three principles that came together to empower yeah. you to build, um, to build Ant. So, what what is Ant? Ants is an organisation that changes people's lives and work and outside of work. When we do that, um, I'm a end of the day. I would describe myself as a businesswoman, and I think that comes from much. I always wanted to be a businesswoman, and I, um. But I didn't really know what it meant. And government kind of bow to, to businesses now. Businesses have the power. And I, I suppose because of my being, I've steeped in business. I've worked for companies and made them a lot of money. <laughs> I've been leading teams of, of 100, team, you know, 100 team members or airlines or whatever that is. And I know how, I know how to make money for other people. But there's a crassness in it. 
and answers about, you know, linking a commercial goal and a social goal can be linked um, to change lives. Um, if you understand your local community as a business person, as a, as, a, as a company, that's one thing. But if you understand the social needs, for example, if you look at Greater Manchester and you look at um, maybe um, poverty or, 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 or disability, you know, the council um, is needing help. The, the local council need help from businesses. So what we do is we take business strategy and a, a social strategy and we link them together and we build projects that change people's lives. Um, it's not rocket science, but there is a methodology. I believe that if you do not make money, you cannot sustain the community projects you're given to. And if you cannot sustain those projects, what's the point of starting them in the first place? So we work with businesses that commit long-term projects that have lasted, you know, answer's 10 years old. We've got programs nine years old that are still going, still supporting the most hard to reach people. Um, and I think the best way to say it is ants and what myself and my team do, we're just the glue in the middle. We're like the, the jam in the Victoria sponge, I say many times. It's the business leaders and community leaders that are inspiring. We work with uh, business influences and leaders that do and are changing how they do business. And they start that by looking at who they are. Their CSR is not a commodity CSR. It's not a market employee. They want to do the doing. They want to impact the environment or a person. And if they want to do that, you should be coming to ANTS because that's what we do. We work with micro companies to global companies and we help them do that. I would say we have a pleasure in working with uh, people from business community and local authority that have a passion to do business differently. We're just kind of the stepping stones that allow them to do that. And that what somebody once said to me, um, a very influential business person. Jen, what's this, you know, social value crap? Grow and give back. What kind of crap's that? And I had that for four years. And he says, you can't do that. You're on your own. And I turned around and I said, I'm not on my own. I said, there's lots of people out there. And he kind of laughed and walked off. And what I mean by that, I'm blessed with the businesses that we work with. I, they want to make a difference. They're the power. But how does a business do it? How do they do business differently? And that's what we help them do. And don't get me wrong, we might start the journey, but they continue the journey without us and sometimes with us because we enable a culture shift. We enable them to help the most hard to reach. I'll give you an example of a program we just had in lockdown and COVID. Um, one of the biggest things was a digital divide. Um, it's always been there. And we had people in isolation, people with severe mental health. Um, so we looked at one program, we looked at 10 people from a hard to reach background. And of that 10, six of them had no broadband. No mm -hmm. connectivity. And of that six, 
um, four of them didn't even have a computer or phone or a laptop. And of four of uh, people out of that six had severe mental health issues. This is week two in lockdown. So what ANTS did, we talked to many, I won't name the organisations, but we talked to many businesses and we talked to a large funding body. And together, we funded a digital programme that's at the moment, I think we've got, I don't know, there's something like 60 plus and growing kit out to the most hard to reach people um, across the UK. So when you work with businesses and you work with local community and understand them, and you work with funders and you work with local government, you can change somebody's life. The problem is that there's a gap. If you don't connect them all up in a circle, it's just business. You, you know, you start with a problem and you solve it and you've got to connect everybody. But the most important thing is how you measure it, Dave, and you're an accountant. So at the end of the day, there's got to be a figure on the bottom. And there should be a figure. To give a pound or to give time, there's no point in giving that if you don't know what it's going to do. So why not make your giving directed and impactful and make sure it hits the person? It's very easy for me to get funding and give out 50 laptops to 50 people to hit a target. But let's make sure it goes to the right people and it has the right outcome. And that's a little bit, it's a long-winded story about what we do. And I think, going back, I want to ask you something because you're a millennial. <laughs> oh, no. Here we go. Okay. You, are, you are a millennial. I'm... I'm, I'm uh, I'm not even going to tell MD how old I am, but um, I'm quite old. So, but you, you, you guys are under more pressure than ever. I've got some stats here and I'm going to read it to you. Um, it said that 61% of, of millennials between the age of 13 and 30 feel personally responsible for making a difference in the world. Is that right? Mm. Do you feel responsible? It's a big burden. That is a big burden. I think as millennials, because we are more exposed to others doing good, yeah, because of the east, because of social media, we realise how accessible it is, and also because of social media, because of television as well. Um, we can see these disadvantaged communities, these vulnerable people, these hard to reach people are on a pedestal for us to view, almost like you in that that glass box. Yeah, yeah. So, for sure. Uh, to go back to your story, you're put in this glass box where people could come and look at you and identify yeah. you as someone who had a disability. Social media is that on steroids. Yeah. We we can see in real time, live every day, other people from disadvantaged backgrounds or vulnerable groups. And we can see other people making a change because those people are also put on the pedestal beside them. Mm. And we can realize, I think we realize as, a, as, as millennials that you don't need to be a CEO like yourself mm. of a charity to make an impact to change a life. Mm. You just need to be able to um, be curious, be brave and just spare time. So I, I, I think... I think mm. to answer your question on a one-stop shop, yes, I th and I think that's the reason. Mm. Would you Would you yeah, agree? I, I would agree, and and I, I probably didn't answer your question, but as a CEO, I don't. The word CEO is chief executive officer. 
I see a bit, I reside with this. I feel personally responsible for making a difference in the world. That's why I asked you the question. So that's what a CEO is to me. Um, a CEO is, is, is somebody that um, is responsible. <laughs> um, and I'd say that so everybody's job as a CEO is every human's job is to be responsible. And, and yeah, I would 100% agree with, with what you're saying. Um, can I give you a wee, just, I wanted to talk about COVID and social value and, and, and diversity and I've got unprecedented times on councils at the moment and, you know, all the, I don't need to say what's going on, but uh, the LGA, LGA in, of 2020 anticipates that 7.4 billion funding gap for local authorities. That's mm. in the UK this year. So the only way that we can support those people and ourselves and identify is if we work together as businesses, charities, and local authorities. Social Value Act of 20, 2012 was to do this. You know, this is what it was there to do, but it became, it became a commodity, a CSR and not a doing. And, you know, I think, and we're seeing it ants, an increase in, in our workload and, and a desire for people to do the doing and not just talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that the FTSE 100 or, or, or the top 100 companies should be not be focusing on the bottom line. It should be focusing on your purpose and not profit. And if you put purpose before profit, we'll so, well, we will eventually solve that 7.4 billion pound deficit um, that we have. And I think, you know, you, you were talking in the beginning about, you know, that hard to reach and, 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 and inspiring and, and, and creating pathways for those that are, that are hidden. Um, unless we all work together, we're going to end up in a real bad place because this COVID is 7.4 billion in the UK alone. And I know I keep saying it. And the only way we can change this is by understanding business community and the local authority societal gaps. There's no point in which happens a lot. Oh, I'll just go down there and paint that community building because I've mm -hmm. got five tons of paint. And that makes me feel good. Well, I'm sorry, you shouldn't feel good by giving. It's what we should be doing anyway. But let's do it in a strategic manner. And let's put the figures on our bottom line to show that we are reducing societal costs and not increasing them. Yeah, and that's really empowering to hear because, like you said, a lot of companies use it as a marketing ploy or a CSR commodity. And essentially it's to say that they're the top employer of XYZ cause or the top yeah. uh, the top contributor to XYZ cause. Yeah. And they use it as a market employee. And I don't think that's right. Um, and, because, and the reason that is is because it creates a model of KPIs of uh of um stats and figures yep. and that's irrelevant to totally. changing a life yeah um businesses like for example your program with the, the connected technology program yeah you can't measure the emotional response and a kpi that that had on someone's no. connectivity to society 
No. If someone logs on and can speak to their to speak to someone, you can't measure that in a bottom line figure. No. Um, and but I think because of because these KPIs and stats exist, because every company wants to use it as a single handed market employee, they don't connect with other businesses because yeah. they, they can't they can't use it when when they're part of a community. And I think you're entirely right to 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 not work in silos when it comes to corporate social responsibility. Businesses should should have responsibility to, to um, work together to, to reduce that bottom line, not just work in a silo, only to use it as a, as a market employee. Would you agree uh, on that? Oh, 100%. 100%. And, you know, I, I think we struggle in ants because we work with some businesses that don't want to talk about the social impact because they feel they should be doing it anyway, you know? So you've either got a good, you can have a great marketing team and no, no, no impact, but a poor marketing team and great impact. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of the wrong, the wrong way around. But um, you know, I think the only way we can drive the change is is working together. But when you talk about KPIs and and, and measurement, you know, I'll make. So, for example, if you improve someone's health, I think it's something like, don't MD shoot me down for this figure. There's a value to it. I think it's like £4,000 a year. But how do you improve somebody's health and well-being? Well, giving them a, a connectivity and a tablet does improve health, uh, mental health and being if you've never had it. One of the guys said to one of, one of the team, have you heard of Netflix? You've never heard of Netflix. It's a man in his 20s, you know? Taking somebody into a building that's never been in a corporate building and creating a network of, of, of a unified approach, a room where we all can walk in and all sit in, yeah. creates. And that is, if you improve somebody's mental health and well-being and they feel better and they don't go to the doctor and they don't need a pill, that's a cost-saving to society. But most importantly, most importantly, it's changing somebody's, it's giving people a different pathways to do something different. Um, and I think um, we've we we got a model um, that measures social value. And there's quite a lot of them out there. Um, Tom has been one of them and many, many others. But it's a self-assessment model. You're an accountant. Do people, you know, as businesses do their own assessment and accountancy, they don't, do they? They don't. Mm -hmm. You do it for them, you know. Yeah. So we've built a program that's um, a person-centered journey that does measure stories and outcomes and figures for people. But I think most importantly, businesses need to understand community, and the only way you can do that is understanding your staff, first of all, because it's, I think it's something like one in 10 people are carers and they don't even know it. Wow. One in 10. So, and also if you've got a staff of like, I don't know, it's a, a, a hundred, I'm sure you'll have about 10 alcoholics and drug addicts in there as well and, and corporate. So is that any different from what's in community or do we just have to hide it in the business environment? You know, cause it's, you know, it's, it's, um, we're all the same is what I'm trying to say. And the sooner we know that the better, 
our, our economy and the communities will be. But we've got a long journey. But you millennials, I think, are, are definitely at the forefront of, of I think, some another stat that you're more likely to work for a company that wants to deliver social change or is delivering social change, you know? And um, you won't chase the money, you chase the purpose. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, well, and, and, and I, I'm talking on an individual case study basis. I think I'm already rich by my own means. Like I'm the first in my family to have a salary and I can do nice things at the weekend. I can go for a coffee. I'm, I'm not rich at all, but no. I am rich by my own means. Mm-hmm. What, what makes me feel rich is that I can go to a place, for example, KPMG where I work and do just do good. Yeah. And they empower me to do that. Mm. It's not a burden on them. It's a, mm. it's a, it's a benefit to them, and they recognise that. Uh, and I think if I was told all of a sudden, David, sorry, you can't do the CSR stuff anymore. You can't lead on these projects. I would probably quit, even yeah. though I, I'm yeah. receiving a salary that's probably yeah. really good for a 22 year old. But I would quit because money doesn't mean anything to me. Mm. Legacy means everything to me. Absolutely. Uh, when, when I, I, I write every single day a positive affirmation and it's something along the lines of um, I am a leader of inspired people and will be re- recognized by society for my significant impact mm-hmm. and I will leave a legacy that's concrete and unique yeah. and I write that every single day yeah. and that's my North Star. Wow. Um, I guess that leads me back to a question I was dying to ask you and you're obviously a thoroughbred entrepreneur. Like it, you bleed to entrepreneurship. You can sell. You can sell yourself. You can sell a vision. You can sell a strategy. You can sell. You can sell a mission. So why have you applied that to social change and not applied it to financial services or technology, where you could have made, if you applied that same mindset and model and skills, you could have made millions and pounds because it's obviously something that's intrinsic to you. But why have you you focus? Why have you focused that on social change? Because it's it's what is what I have to do. <laughs> it's just how business should be done. Everybody should be focusing on um, social change within their business. You know, I don't see any other way of doing business. There's no other way to do business. And there shouldn't be another way, any other way to do business. You should be driving social change, purpose before profit. If you drive purpose, you'll, you'll drive profit and you'll drive shift change. The two to me are hand in hand. And I refuse to believe um, that business should be done any other way. I can't, I just, you know, it cannot be done any other way. Uh, What's the point of getting up in the morning? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love that. I love that. Um, I guess another question I have for you is, when did you know that you had made it? When when did you know you escaped that trouble path that you were once on? What moment in your career? And it was before. It was two points for me. One was when I gave the career worker the the interview back. Um, at that point, I knew that I could make decisions and and annoy people. So I, I think I'm definitely a disruptor, um, and that gave me the confidence to disrupt. And I think the other moment was when I started Ants, because Ants is a uh, we have a charity and we have a business and a social enterprise and I think at that moment um, when I started Ants and I can't tell you how many people told me it was such a shite idea 
And I've learned something. If you believe in something so much, it doesn't actually matter what MD says, right? But when they tell you it's shite, don't do it. If you believe in it and you know it's right and you get an abundance of people coming to say, don't do that. It's probably the right thing to do. <laughs> because in my whole life, not my whole life, my school life, you can't do that. You can't do that. You have to do that. You, you can't read. You can't, you can't do this. You can't, you can't, you can't. So I was used to people telling me what I couldn't do, not about what I could do. So I'm, when I studied up ants, my, my goal was across the UK to have a unified network that changes people's lives in work and out and do business differently. That's how business should, that's how business and social should work. So somebody telling me that I couldn't do it, which was when I started that, I probably, I spoke to about 15, 20 people and only two of them told me it would work. A guy called Martin Ainsco and a guy called Ollie from a company called Altec. I kind of knew it was the right thing because everybody told me it was the wrong thing. Does that, is that ironic? You know, people were pushing against me and um, what's the point of getting up if you can only have 10 million in your bank and they've got a big empty castle? You know, and you look down and everybody and think, oh, I'm great, and you're sat in your ivy. There's no fun in that. I'm, I'm a, MD will tell you, I love community, I love people, I love networking. I thrive on, on, on culture. Um, most people do. I think our, our cultures, are, our communities have eroded and we have to do it differently. It's funny hearing that theme of high agency. When you were the 15-year-old school schoolgirl and you were told a certain story and a way of working that you must have followed and you broke that norm yeah. and you went off and did your own thing. It's funny how that matters when you were much older and you started ants where people telling telling you the way to do it yeah. and what things you can't do, you smash that again. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to think about um, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the term imposter syndrome where I you're am. at a point where you're at a point in your life where you don't believe that you belong there? You believe it's a result of luck or misfortune or or fortune. Uh, and people are told imposter syndrome is a bad trait to have. <laughs> And I, I don't think it is a bad thing to I have. I think, think it's a good it thing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good thing to have because yeah. if you're going somewhere, if, you're, if your mind's taking you to a place that doesn't exist, it doesn't, for example, ants, yeah. that didn't exist. No, it doesn't exist. No, it didn't. No. If you're wanting to build something that doesn't exist, you should have imposter syndrome because Absolutely. no one's ever done it before. Yeah. I think it's a healthy thing to have imposter syndrome because you're always any entrepreneur or any, anybody would tell you, you know, the biggest thing is, my biggest fear is failure to deliver. Not for, yeah, for myself and also because of what we do is so important, but absolutely have imposter syndrome. I have been an entrepreneur when I started dance. It's probably the loneliest place I've ever been, you know? And when you're self-funding as well, you know, um, and you're employing people, um, it's scary. And you've got this nagging things in, you can't do it, you're a failure, you've got dyslexia, 
your fair council has, you know, um, you know, um, all those things. I'd say the biggest thing was my dyslexia and my ability to write and 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 you probably hear it in the interview, you know, I tell, I go around a long way to tell a story, you know, um, I'm not very good at writing things down. I've got a business partner now um, who shares ants with me and he he's phenomenal. And I still go to bed thinking I'm thick. I still go to bed thinking I'm thick, but I, here's the bit that I do know. I can, if I put my mind to it, I can do most things, you know, but I'm still thick. So there's my imposter syndrome. Um, I'm like you, I feel very rich. Money is not, I have a lot of disrespect for money. Um, Is that good or bad? I really don't know. Um, But yeah, I'm thick and I'll, I'll probably die thick. But my vision that I have and had for ants um, will be a reality and is a reality and it is happening. Um, Every business should have a charity inside their desk and in an office. We should be giving space to them. We should be inviting communities into our space. You know, um, we should be, when we do our strategy, our five-year strategy, our year strategy, our monthly strategy, we should be considering our social um, environments outside the door. And I believe that's the future, but I know it is the future. It's happening every day in ants. We meet companies that do that. But imposter syndrome, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thick, David, and I'll always <laughs> will be. Oh, I, I absolutely love that, that transparency, that kind of Google Maps tour of your, your brain yeah. and your thoughts, even as an, such a successful, inspiring role model and CEO, is, um, it, make, it personifies this conversation. It makes you relatable. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I see in my corporate setting and one thing I pride myself in is I am my true self 100% mm. of the time. Mm. Um, whereas... As a 16, so I did work experience at KPMG when I was uh, when I was 15 or 16. I'm from a disadvantaged background and society told me I needed to know my place. Mm. I needed to know my social status and stay there. Mm. And if I want to reach an upwards trajectory and hit a new social status, <laughs> I had to wear a facade. I had to wear a mask that mirrored the people yeah. that sat in that bubble. Yeah. And until I went into a large corporation and noticed diversity and noticed that we only thrive when we utilize and are transparent about our own personal story and our own personal journey. That's when success breeds and that's when success implements. Um, 100%. And it, it makes me think that um, the, only, the only thing that, sorry, at least the one thing that everyone is best at is being themselves. Exactly. No one's better at being David McIntosh yes. than David McIntosh. I know all the knowledge and all the experience from my life that no one else has ever experienced. Yes. And that's my unique selling point. When we talk about glass, glass ceilings, we think gla- a glass ceiling is, is limited access to opportunity. Yes. yes, that is a glass ceiling. But I think the truest glass ceiling is the facade that disadvantaged people or vulnerable people wear to try and fit in. As soon as yes. they let that facade slip, that mask slip and be their true selves, that, that glass ceiling doesn't exist. 
100, 100%. And the talent that's out there that's untapped in the UK is immense. It's immense. We have entrepreneurs. We have. We need to remove the glass ceiling and authenticity is 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 key. And but you're seeing it in more and more in businesses and and organisations. But I still do think some people like rules, David. They like the rules. There's a huge percentage of people that, and there's nothing wrong with not being an entrepreneur. There's nothing wrong with, you know, we're all different, aren't we? And I, I am a rule breaker. I am, but you need people that aren't, and 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 you need people that on your team that aren't. So I think it needs to be a different blend of different people. But I think when you go into any corporate environment as a young person, you do you sit and you watch and you mirror and you. But hopefully, you find your own place. And I think one of the things that you have shown me over and over again, your authenticity and fierceness from your background and, 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 and from your upbringing and who you are, is the way to do business. You're succeeding because you're doing it differently from and I'm all doing your it, peers. And I'm doing it as me. As you. I'm not doing it as anyone else. I'm doing it as yeah. David McIntosh. Yes. And that's the that's that's the thing that I bring to the table, and yes. that's what everyone else should be bringing to the table. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think, oh, it's been great talking to you, and uh, I will continue to be authentic, and I know you will. And it's uh, I'm so glad that I paid your taxi fare. I think you owe me two pound fifty though. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, do you know what I, I owe you? Much, much more than that, and I, and I really mean that. Uh, I guess the, the question I want to end on is um, what's next for Jen? What's next for Ants? And what legacy do you want to leave behind? Well, what's next for Jen is hopefully getting to Perth to see my my daughter who's expecting a, a beautiful baby boy in May. Um, that's um, a, a personal um, thing at the moment as we're in COVID. Let's hope that happens. Um, what's next for Ants? Ants is growing. Um, and we're going to be growing into Scotland and across the UK. Um, there's more desires uh, for the work that we do and we'll continue to uh, create commercial and social growth. Um, and we're excited about that. Um, and the future legacy do I want to leave? I need to live till I'm 110, I think. I have got this goal for 110 um, and I believe I will make it, but I do, I do, I'd love to go to my resting place knowing that we're all doing business differently and everyone has an opportunity. And CSR is not even mentioned because it's just what we do, like breathing. It's like the taste of our own mouth. Great. Perfect. <laughs> So, Jen, I'm, I'm so appreciative of this conversation, all the support and the intrinsic impact that you've had on me. And you don't even know. It. I don't even know. I, I have no idea. I think you're inspirational. You... You're inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> we plan on working together yes, uh, on numerous projects and I, I just can't wait. But for now, thank you. And where can, where can the listeners find you? Where, where can we find you and Ants? OK, well, you find me online um, on LinkedIn as uh, Jen Gillis Pemberton, Gillis being my Scottish birth name. Um, and um, our website is www.ants.co.uk. 
antsuk.com, antsuk.com. Yeah. I really appreciate it, Jen. Until next time. Thanks, David. Bye. Bye.